Hello and welcome to the Glide TV Recaps, The Golden Girls. Today we are on Season 3, Episode 5, Nothing to Fear But Fear Itself, which originally aired on October 27th of 1987. So what other interesting historical events occurred on October the 24th? Well, way back in 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia, ends the Thirty Years' War in the Holy Roman Empire as Switzerland's independence is recognized. In 1931, Al Capone is sentenced to 11 years in prison for tax evasion. In 1938, the United States forbids child labor in factories. Uh, in 1940, the United States Fair Labor Standards of 1938 comes into effect introducing minimum wage and the 44-hour work week. In 1945, the Charter of the United Nations comes into effect. In 1970, Salvador Allende is elected president of Chile. In 1973, John Lennon sues the U.S. government, forcing the FBI to admit to tapping Lennon's phone. In 2017... Albert Einstein's Theory of Happiness, written as a note for a bellboy instead of a tip in Tokyo in 1922, is sold for $1.56 million. And our most recent event, on October 24th of 2018, scientists confirm that East Island in Hawaii, half a mile long, has been wiped out completely after contact with Hurricane Walaka. That is our history lesson for today. So, what transpired in this frightening edition of the Golden Girls? Okay. Wow, we start in the kitchen. Sophia, she's making lasagna. Woohoo! Dorothy and Blanche enter. Rose enters with the mail and bad news. Her Aunt Gretchen in Fort Lauderdale has passed away. Rose has to speak at her funeral. The three girls are now in the living room, and Rose is scared of talking in front of people. Dorothy gives her the advice of picturing your audience naked. And from my experience, I can tell you that does not work. Uh, scene two. We're in the kitchen again. Sophia making a new entry for her Daughters of Italy cooking contest. This time it is veal parmesan. She says it saved her marriage once and we get a story. Picture it. New York City, 1931, the Depression. She is a newlywed. One rainy night they have their first fight. He is leaving. She says, fine. He leaves. She starts to cook. A few hours later he comes back saying he couldn't find a cab. They ate in silence, but halfway through, she looked up and he has tears in his eyes. He says that this meal is like their marriage. The veal is like him, tough and stubborn. The tomato sauce is like Sophia, hot and spicy. And the mozzarella is like their love. It stretches, but it never breaks. What a story. Rose and Blanche enter. Rose is still nervous about her speech. We learn about Rose's graduation where she was valedictorian. Holy cow. Though she was fourth place in her class. She drew the longest straw, of course. 
That's how they do it at St. Olaf. Dorothy says she was afraid of flying, but overcame it to attend her sister's wedding in California. And Blanche says she is afraid of nothing. Though she had a recurring dream where she was trapped with a lot of bald men. Rose leaves to work on her speech. Dorothy and Blanche continue talking in the kitchen about what each would say at the other's funeral. Yes. Scene three, we're out on the lanai. Rose enters and says she is ready to practice her eulogy. The other girls all get in their proper places. Rose cannot get far in the speech. She gets encouragement from the others, but Dorothy and Blanche agree to go to the funeral with Rose, and the funeral is in the Bahamas, which means they have to fly, and Dorothy doesn't like that idea, of course. And we learn that Blanche has nothing in black to wear that isn't see-through. Yes. Scene four, we're in the living room. Girls are discussing going to the Bahamas. Dorothy says she can't go, and she has to take Sophia to the hospital. She got extremely sick during her cooking contest. Ah, uh, Sophia ruins that by walking in the front door, and she's very healthy. Dorothy doesn't want to get on the plane. So now Rose isn't going to go. Blanche sets them straight, and the three head out the front door. Scene five, we're at the airport. Oh boy, Blanche and Dorothy's on the plane next to each other. Dorothy is holding Blanche's arm very tight. Rose arrives, saying she found a big bolt. Dorothy wants to leave, uh, but it is too late. We get the girls talking, and Dorothy showing her fear. We get Rose talking about her eulogy. Dorothy has drank some champagne, and eh, she's feeling pretty good now. Blanche notices all the men on the plane are bald. Uh-oh, Blanche is now scared. Her dream is coming true. The hostess wants to know if anybody has found a big bolt. <laughs> I'd be worried. Scene six, we're still on the plane. The girls are looking scared and not wanting to talk. It may shake the plane, but they talk. They finally feel good, and the pilot says there is turbulence ahead as they are flying into the eye of a storm. They need to turn around and head back to Miami. Rose gives her speech on the plane, and eh, she does pretty good there. The pilot has a little bit of fun with the passengers also. Yeah, that was pretty funny. And at scene seven, we're getting back home. We learn about the cooking contest. Sophia's main competition died at the contest. And Sophia has volunteered Rose to give the eulogy on Saturday as this episode comes to a close. Well, again, a few uh, cultural references, of course, throughout this episode. Uh, one to Jay Leno, uh, who is a comedian, well, supposedly a comedian, uh, actor, writer, producer, and television host. Uh, who hosted The Tonight Show for a while. Um, Rose, we have another made-up uh, Rose uh, Viking slash Scandinavian term here uh, with Janerption lurkin. Uh, that is a made-up uh, term. Thank you. Uh, Jeopardy, <laughs> a TV game show featuring a quiz competition in which contestants are presented with general knowledge. Uh, Heifetz. Uh, I didn't know what, I'm not sure what they meant here. So, um, Heifetz is typically a Jewish surname 
originating from uh, Belarus and Lithuania. It is unrelated to the similar sounding Arabic name Hafaz or Hafiz, meaning guardian or protector. It's also spelled uh, in many other ways. It possibly could refer to Zev Chavetz, an American Israeli author and columnist, Jason Chaffetz, a U.S. representative from Utah, Hammond Chaffetz, a U.S. federal prosecutor and partner at legal firm Kirkland & Ellis, Jill Chaffetz, an American lawyer and children's rights advocate, Israel Merkagan, popularly known as the Chofetz Chaim, a Lithuanian Jewish rabbi from the 1800s, uh, Jonathan Heifetz, an American lawyer and writer, Daniel Heifetz, a concert violinist and founder of the Heifetz International Music Institute and brother of Ronald L. Heifetz, who we'll talk about in a minute, Danny Heifetz, an American musician, percussionist, and grandson of Yasha Heifetz, Yasha Heifetz, a Lithuanian-born American violinist, Ronald L. Heifetz, an American leadership teacher, Yuri Heifetz, a Russian poet and singer-songwriter, Grigory Heifetz, a Soviet KGB agent, and last but not least, of the people that have a Wikipedia page, Yosef Heifetz, a Soviet film director. <laughs> okay. So it could have been any of those people or just the name in general, I'm not sure. Uh, Joe Frazier was a professional boxer. Uh, he reigned as the undisputed heavyweight champion from 1970 to 73. He was known for his sheer strength, durability, formidable punching power, and relentless pressure fighting style. No clue what any of that meant after we got past professional boxer. No clue what any of that meant. Uh, Mel Gibson is an actor, filmmaker, and noted racist, also known for his best action hero roles, namely his breakout role as Max Rokotansky in the first three Mad Max films. Um, do -do -do. Uh, so uh, we'll come back to this in a bit. Uh, the Four Tops, uh, a vocal quartet from Detroit who helped to define uh, the Motown sound of the 60s. Originally founded as the Four Ames, uh, their name was changed for marketability reasons, I would assume. Uh, Dennis Hopper, an American actor, director, writer, film editor, photographer, and artist uh, who made his first television appearance in 1954 and soon after appeared in Rebel Without a Cause in 1955. Uh, he also began a prolific and acclaimed photography career in the 1960s. Uh, Copacabana is a neighborhood located in the south zone of the city of Rio de Janeiro. Uh, it is known for its four-kilometer beach, which is one of the most famous beaches in the world, apparently. Uh, Mr. Clean is a brand name, a mascot owned by Procter & Gamble, used as an all-purpose cleaner and melamine foam cleaner as well. Al Capone, uh, an American gangster and businessman, who attained notoriety during the Prohibition era as the co-founder and boss of the Chicago Outfit. His seven-year reign as crime boss ended when he was 33 years old. Uh, he apparently reveled in attention, such as the cheers from spectators when he appeared in local baseball games. Uh, he made donations to various charities and was used by many as a modern-day Robin Hood figure at the time. 
however, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, in which seven gang rivals were murdered in broad daylight, damaged Chicago's and Capone's image, leading influential citizens to demand government action and newspapers to dub Capone public enemy number one. The federal authorities became intent on jailing him and prosecuted him in 1931 for tax evasion. Uh, during a highly publicized case, the judge admitted as evidence Capone's admissions of his income and unpaid taxes during prior negotiations to pay the government taxes he owed. He was convicted and sentenced to 11 years in federal prison. After conviction, he replaced his defense team with experts in tax laws and his grounds for appeal were strengthened by a Supreme Court ruling, but his appeal ultimately failed. Uh, so that is Al Capone. Uh, last but not least, reference Rose uh, brings up a traditional Viking funeral. So, what was a typical uh, Viking funeral like? Well, uh, it's very hard to know uh, exactly as the Vikings kept very few written accounts of their lives and deaths, but thanks to a few remaining accounts and archaeological remains, it's possible to resurrect some of their funeral traditions. Most were sent to the afterlife in one or two ways, cremation or burial. Now, cremation often upon a funeral pyre was particularly common among the earliest Vikings, who believed the fire's smoke would help carry the deceased to the afterlife. Once cremated, the remains also might be buried, typically in an urn. Uh, for both cremated remains and bodies, burial locations ranged widely from shallowly dug graves to burial mounds that could hold multiple bodies and groupings of mounds or grave fields that served much the same role as modern cemeteries. Uh, in Norse mythology, boats symbolized safe passage into the afterlife on the same vessel that aided their travels in life, so they played a key role in funeral rites. Some grave mounds were built to resemble ships with stones used to outline the vessel's shape. For other high-ranked Norsemen, the honors went a step further, and they were buried with their actual boats. But these types of elaborate boat funerals weren't reserved for just men. One of the most extravagant boat burials honored two women who likely died around 834. Uh, known as the Ulsberg ship, it's one of the most well-preserved Viking artifacts. While the Vikings were known for the craftsmanship that went into their vessels in general, the size and detail of the Ulsberg was exceptional. 70 feet long and nearly 17 feet wide, the ship had 15 oars on each side, a pine mast standing more than 30 foot high, and was spacious enough to fit at least 30 people. Now, contrary to popular belief, funeral boats were rarely sent to sea. Likely due to the cost of building them uh, was quite uh, unwieldy. So it's unlikely that there were many, if any, they were set sail and then set ablaze by fiery arrows shot from the shores. Uh, and uh, regardless of how the body was disposed, a few rituals remained almost constant. The body was draped in new clothes prepared specifically for the funeral. And a ceremony was held featuring songs, chants, food, and alcohol. Tributes and gifts known as grave goods and usually of equal value to the deceased status were buried or burned along with the recipient. These goods ran the gamut from weapons to jewelry to slaves. 
One Viking site in Flokstad, Norway, contained multiple bodies, some decapitated in a single grave. Based on analysis of their diets and DNA, it was determined they were likely slaves who had been sacrificed to spend eternity with their Viking masters. Women were often taken in as sex slaves, as standard parts of Viking culture, so the idea that they would be sacrificed with their master is rather feasible. Uh, and last but not least, according to a report based on accounts from the Middle-Aged Middle Ages traveler Ahmad ibn Fadland, one instance of the funeral of a Viking chieftain included a sacrificial female slave who was forced to drink copious amounts of alcohol with large amounts who was forced to drink copious amounts of alcohol with large amounts of alcohol. Okay. Uh, then raped by every man in the village as a tribute to the deceased. From there, she was strangled with a rope, stabbed by a matriarch of the village known as the Angel of Death, then placed in the boat with her master and set on fire. Uh, so, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, we have two side characters in this episode. Candy, the flight attendant, uh, is played by Meg Wiley. Known for her work in The Last Starfighter, Marnie, Dragnet, and Nothing in Common. Uh, she will also appear a few more times on The Golden Girls. Uh, once uh, later this season in a different role, uh, and then uh, in two other episodes later on in the series in two different roles. Uh, and Captain Lord is uh, voiced by Paul Ross, uh, who is most known for his work in, well, he only has uh, five other acting credits uh, for Four Play, Lenny Goes to Town, Doctors, Bridget Jones's Diary, and Annually Retentive. Uh, he was also an editor on three TV series, The London Program, The Word, and Johnny Vaughn Tonight. Uh, also produced The Word and World Cup Extra, uh, and appears as himself uh, in a voice, he, he appears as himself on a lot of uh, roles as a kind of a TV pr uh, pro producer, TV uh, presenter type of guy. He, he does that a lot uh, on, you know, he's done stuff like um, Celebrity Fit Club, The Greatest Movie Love Scenes. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, Ad of the Decade. Uh, smile, this was Candid Camera. The 50 Greatest Harry Potter Moments. Uh, okay. Piers Morgan's Life Stories. Uh, when Television Goes Horribly Wrong. Christmas University Challenge. Uh, so he does a lot of those kind of shows. Uh -huh. um, no new sex partners in this episode as far as I could tell. So, Tally Stands, Blanche 34... Dorothy 6, Rose 5, and Sophia 1. Okay. My kitchen observation, believe it or not, they have the same orange tablecloth they had in the last episode. Now, Sophia and her timeline here in this episode. Just unbelievable. Um, yes, it's a sitcom, and they don't... These characters change their... Uh, 
information as much as they changed her underwear, maybe. But anyway, in this episode, Sophia says she was married for 52 years. Okay, in season two, episode eight and number nine, she said they were married for 45 years. Okay. Um, now, back in season one, episode seven, we learned that her husband had passed away 22 years ago. Now, if you take the 22 and the 52, she said in this episode, you would get that that's been 74 years and she's only like 80, 82. So she got married when she was eight years old? Well, maybe. But you also have to realize that in this episode, um, she says they were newlyweds in 1931. That was her picture at story. In 1931, this is 1987, so 52 years of marriage, or even 45, but we'll go with the 52 right now. 52 years of marriage, 1931, that would mean that he died in 1983. Uh, there's no way he could have been dead for 22 years then. Uh, even if you take the 45 years from 1931, that's 1976 he died. That's only like 10 years ago. So her timeline for marriage, his death, and all that, her age, all of, none of it matches up to anything possible. So I'm going to guess it's either her stroke or the writer's just putting in funny stuff here for us. Or she probably was not married for 52 years or 45 years or whatever. Um... And I'm going to look ahead a little bit here, which we don't usually do, but I'm going to. Uh, in this one, Rose was her graduated. She was the valedictorian and all that stuff. But in season four, which we will get to, um, Rose uh, slept through the last part of her high school and graduation. Um, so, because uh, she had mono, in the last part of her high school, so being the valedictorian wouldn't be possible either. All righty, and last but not least, <clears throat> just a little funny thing here, I think, but when you're on an airplane, or, you know, to me, I think all flights now, maybe not in the 80s, but if you're taking off from Miami and going to the Bahamas, you check the weather. And like, oh wait, there's a big storm coming from the Bahamas, so we need to take our plane and you know either route it around the storm or wait until a storm is. You don't get all the way up to the storm and go, oh, well, there's a storm here. There's a storm. We gotta go back to Miami. <laughs> you would not do that. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe if a blizzard blew in all of a sudden or something, but you check the weather patterns and the flights would not go off if there's any chance of a storm in your way. Uh, personally, I believe you would route around it and go, okay, yeah, we, we may have to go 20 miles to the east or west, but we can go around this storm. And we'll get you to the Bahamas five minutes late. Okay, anyway, my counts for this episode. We had one St. Olaf story about Rose's graduation. 
and one picture at story, which is with Sophia in New York City, 1931, and getting married. Uh, or right after her marriage, I should say. Um, so our total counts. Five weddings and planned weddings still. Seven physical abuses arose. Fourteen St. Olaf stories. Seven picturette stories now. Eight cheesecakes eaten. Seven Sicily Italian stories. Twenty-six Sicily Italian references. The girls were mad at each other. Not best friends are moving out nine times. We have 17 sports. 19 games and five Stanley Zabornak appearances. In this one, there were many good lines. It The episode seems kind of uneven to me for some reason. Maybe it's the continuity errors, but there's good humor throughout this episode, but there's no really, really big laughs. And this episode got an 80 out of 100. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Glide TV Recaps, the Golden Girls. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. If you did, uh, make sure to subscribe to the show for more great content like this. And until the next episode, good.